Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight bet or parlay. That's $200 that you can use for all the upcoming basketball action, including the men's basketball tournament. If you bet at least $500 during the first and second round of the tournament, you can get a trip to the five-star rated Win Las Vegas. Offer subject to change, terms, and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in a state where playthrough winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode number 31 of the That's So Mets podcast. And spring training is officially underway. And we got a lot of good stuff to go through on today's show as the Mets have signed Taiwan Walker to a two-year deal. Uh, Third year is a player option. So we're going to go through that. A pretty exciting late add in the offseason to the starting rotation and pretty significant one as well. And we're going to talk about the spring training storylines what the bullpen is going to look like, the the bench competition, and some of the prospects that are actually in the big league camp. And, and of course, one of the hottest topics around right now, if Francisco Lindor or Michael Conforto will sign an extension, will the Mets get an extension done with one of those two guys before the regular season begins? And as we always do, we'll close out the show with the great questions you've sent us. So, Joe, let's bring you in here. How are we doing? And what was your reaction to Walker Finally signing. We'd heard about this one for a while, but the Mets get this one done. Doing pretty good. And yeah, Walker, Taiwan Walker, I think it's a pretty exciting signing. And what I do like about it, because my original thought was they'll probably try to find a starter on a one-year deal, just patchwork the back end of the rotation, and then you know revisit it again next year. But I actually like the structure of this deal, and they were pretty creative with it. So it's a two-year deal with a third-year player option. And from a luxury tax payroll standpoint, the third-year player options count as guaranteed money. So ultimately, from a perspective of the luxury tax, MLB and the MLBPA will be calling this a three-year, $23 million contract which is a little over $7 million a year. I think it's an excellent deal for the Mets for a team that just, they really needed another starter. You know, we were looking at David Peterson as the fourth starter and then a competition between Joey Lucchese and Jordan Yamamoto for the fifth spot. But now everyone kind of goes down a rung and you could even have Peterson compete with Lucchese at this point. I mean, why not have some old school battles on, you know, for people to earn spots on the team. And they both have minor league options. They both can be sent to AAA. Or if a a Peterson decides to win the fifth spot, then Lucchese could go to the bullpen. And I think he could be effective there too. But yeah, overall, love the Walker move. Uh, I'm interested to see how everything goes for him because you know there's there's certainly things out there about his advanced metrics and and some concerns about you know maybe some regression that's forthcoming but when i look back at taiwan walker's career he's basically outperformed what the advanced metrics have said he should have done for his entire career so there's got to be a point in time where you either call him an outlier or there's just something that the advanced stats are not picking up 
as to why Walker is being successful. Because the reality is, Walker's had been good basically his entire career. The only issue he's had is injuries and then consistently, you know, being on the field. And that's why the Mets have built up this depth where you take a guy like Walker and you throw him in the rotation. I think 2021 specifically will be heavily based on like total team innings. Like, I don't know how many guys are going to throw 200 plus innings or how the whole innings thing is going to work. And that's why I think it's important that the Mets built the depth that they did. So that way they could give guys breaks if they need to. But yeah, no, I, I think Walker was exactly what the Mets needed. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have no complaints. The contract seems perfectly fair and they cover themselves going forward a little bit. You know, Noah Syndergaard and Marcus Stroman are going to be free agents after this year. And, you know, you'd like to bring at least one of them back. But if they get to free agency, there's no guarantee you're able to. Even though Steve Cohen has money, all that good stuff, you never know what will drive someone's free agent decision. So it's, it's better to have a guy like Walker in tow so that way next year you're not scrambling so much. I'm with you all the way. I mean, really, uh, great points all around. A lot of things I wanted to touch on. The first being that when you talk about what kind of pitcher he is, because a lot of people are reacting on both ends of the spectrum here and, and not a lot of reactions in the middle. A lot of people see the 2-7 ERA and they, you know, they're really excited or a lot of people say, well, he's nothing close to that with the advanced metrics. I think when you look at the money he got and the term he got, which is a very, very cheap deal for a, you know, a pitcher that is turning 28 or just turned, uh, recently turned 28 years old, you're looking at this and going, well, if he pitches a sub four ERA and stays healthy, that's a steal in this climate, especially at this point of the offseason and the fact that at most, you're hoping he can be your four. I mean, you're really not expecting him, obviously, to outperform DeGrom or Stroman or even Carrasco. Him and Pete, you know, we're going to see what kind of jump Peterson or decline. We don't know, sophomore slump what kind of player Peterson is this year, but Walker is signed to be the fifth starter. And to the second point, and a big one that you made, Joe, is that we don't know what kind of innings Noah Syndergaard is going to come back and be ready to throw this year. And we also don't know, you know, if you're looking for a way to knock this signing, if Taiwan Walker's a guy that'll stay healthy throughout the full year. So now you kind of have this mix and match of depth, like you said, when you look at Lucchese and Yamamoto, I mean, those are your guys. Lucchese can be an extremely capable fit starter, I believe. But having him as your sixth, really an injury insurance kind of guy or bullpen guy, makes a significant difference. So I was a huge fan of the signing. And the final point being, just to reiterate kind of what you said, it gives the Mets a little stability going into next offseason, where you have DeGrom on, on a steal of a contract. Same with Carrasco. So you know those guys are going to be on your rotation the following year. And you obviously have Peterson, but you're you're not sure what he is yet. Was he great as a rookie? I thought he was. I thought he was very impressive. But once again, you're just not absolutely betting, but you think that he'll be a part of your long-term rotation. And now you have Walker as well, where maybe you go into next offseason and you feel pretty good and you're saying, okay, we'll we'll bring back either Syndergaard or Stroman. We know the other one's going to walk. But at least we have a lot of familiarity in our one through five in this rotation that we feel comfortable that we're building something here. So I really like the signing. 
may call me an optimist, but I think with Taiwan Walker, I think his best days are ahead of him. A, a guy, once again, that's 28 years old, that was very good last year, that before he basically lost the 2019 season due to injury, it kind of looked like he had figured it out. In 2017, and this is a player, and he said it himself, he came up to the big leagues as a 20-year-old, a very, very young player. It's hard to figure everything out at that age, but by the time he was 24 and in Arizona, I mean, he made 28 starts and had a 3-4-9 ERA. The light had obviously come on at such a young age, and of course, injury sidelines that, but I think there's a lot of upside with this signing. I don't see the downside because you're if you were betting on Taiwan Walker to be your number two, you're taking an enormous risk because of injury, but you're not. You're betting on him to be your number five, so I really like the way the Mets closed out this offseason. Getting him or Oda Rizzi uh, was absolutely my preference. Uh, you know, sure, they missed on Paxton, who there, there's some injury risk with him as well. They didn't take some, some one-year darts like a Kluber. I think this is a great outcome here for the Mets, and I, I think it just gives you a little bit more comfort and stability with this rotation. And to kind of put a bow on this entire thing, because I think a lot of people you know, miss the big picture, and I'm guilty of it at times too. Joe, look at this team. Last year we were watching when Jacob DeGrom wasn't pitching. Rick Porcello, Michael Waka, you know, random guys that would normally be in Syracuse that really aren't real sixth or seven starters. Peterson was good as a rookie. That was a surprise or a little bit of luck. I don't think we were ready for him to have that kind of impact last year. And a Seth Lugo or Robert Gesellman that just weren't properly stretched out that would give you three innings of, of average at best pitching. And at best is the key thing there. Now instead, you're watching DeGrom, Stroman, Carrasco, Walker, a, a second, a little more seasoned version of Peterson and Lucchese if things go wrong somewhere one through five. I think big picture, that's an exciting change heading into this year. Absolutely. And I, I honestly think that's, that's an underrated thing that I think fans aren't really thinking about. I know you, there's a lot of fans that still, for some reason, are complaining about the rotation. Uh, don't quite get it. Like, did you watch 2020? Like, this is, this rotation is night and day from what you saw in, in 2020. So I'm super excited about where the rotation stands depth-wise and talent-wise. So it's not just like they have a bunch of okay guys. They have some really good pitchers and like you said with Walker I still think there is a little upside there I don't I don't think he'll ever live up to what the, he was thought to be as a prospect I mean there was a point in time when he was a top five prospect in the game so I don't think he'll ever really become that frontline guy but he's made it clear that you know he's invested in his analytics he went to drive line he started utilizing his slider more and in 2020, granted it was shortened, he got into the 77th, 77th percentile of hard hit rate, so he was inducing weaker contact this year, and he upped his strikeout percentage to 22%, which is tied for the best of his career. So he did, made some adjustments to miss some more bats, induce some weaker contact, and and like you said, they're they're counting on Walker to be at best the number four starter. If he gives you anything more than that, that's gravy. But yeah, no, I I, I don't see the downside as far as like I don't think you're going to be at a point with Taiwan Walker where you go, oh, Taiwan Walker's pitching today. Like 
it may get to the point where you're just like, all right, fine, he's pitching today, no big deal, but I don't think it's going to be, you know, every fifth day you dread the fact that Taiwan Walker's taking the ball. So the rotation... Which was Porcello. <laughs> yeah, which was Porcello, which was Waka and Corey Oswald and those guys. So, you know, I think they're much better set up. And I said this last week, now you could even add Walker into the fray, whether he goes to the bullpen in the playoffs or, or what, however they want to work it. The Mets starting pitching, if they make the playoffs, can carry them to the NLCS, to the World Series even. Like, it is it is a very good rotation. I'm just laughing looking at last year. I mean, the Mets had, like, three players with legitimate start numbers. Waka started seven. Matt started six. Gesellman started four. And you're talking about 6-6-2 ERA and then two guys that almost had a 10 ERA. I, I know I'm trying, like, it's ridiculous to draw comparisons to a shortened season and just those numbers are insane to be, like, happy about. But that is, I mean, that is you can't win. Bad. Yeah. You can't win yeah. that way. And you look at the, the offense is hilariously good. The Mets 2020 season, where they went 26 and 30, is just so bizarre. Because they had such a good offense that is all back, by the way. I know no Cano, but, I mean, you made enough upgrades, right? You, yeah. feel, you feel good. Your guy named Francisco Lindor is in the lineup. And, so and hey, if, if the offense was just average last year, we'd be picking Kumar Rocker or Jack Leiter at the top of the draft this year. But, yeah, um, yeah still, like, the rotation was so bad that the Mets had the best offense in baseball and are picking 10th in the draft this year because they were a 10th worst team. That's how bad the, the starting pitching was. So I think I think the Mets are in for a really, really good season. And I, I know Met fans. I know how, you, how we are. We like to nitpick and, you know, break things down. But I, I look at this team, and I, I don't see, you know, barring some absurd amount of injuries, which is – Something that happens to the Mets historically. Um, but barring that, I don't see how this team is not a playoff team. I just I just can't see it. The only thing that, that keeps me in check time and time again is the division they play in. It's the only thing. It, it, everything else I look at, I think the Mets have a great lineup. I think they improved defensively. The DH, no DH thing hurts them. But they still got better up the middle of the field with McCann and Lindor. Their rotation got significantly better. The bullpen, you know, no Lugo the first couple weeks is rough, but they added pieces to this bullpen. So, yeah, I'm I'm with you. And, and just to get into some of those things, we'll talk about some of the spring training storylines. Even if there are injuries, Joe, which you always have to prepare for, it just feels like this year it's a different group that would have to play meaningful games if there was a real injury. Like, I can stomach VR having to start some games I can stomach like Jose Martinez being a bat potentially a bat off the bench I don't know it just it just seems like they are they're not injury proof they're not built to survive you know two star players going down no one really is but at least there's something there where there's real major leaguers that would come in and, and handle you know two weeks here three weeks there off the bench yeah, no, you're right. I mean, just look at look at the bench. You know, you're looking at Jonathan VR. Like you said, he's a guy that was a four win player in 2019 and played all 162 games for Baltimore. 
Jose Martinez, you know, he might end up in AAA Syracuse to start. But again, he's a guy you could, if there's an injury to Pete, you know, or something like that, you could bring Martinez up and he could play some first base for you and, and you know, provide some right-handed thump. And then in the outfield, you know, I'm sure they wanted to get Jackie Bradley Jr. The lack of DH kind of took them out of that. So they could have sat back and cried that they didn't have the DH and waited and hoped and see if they could get Bradley. But they said, look, we have to address the outfield. And, you know, if a Brandon Nimmo misses some time or you want to split things up, you have Kevin Pillar, who at this point is, you know, maybe a little slightly below average in center field, but he still can play it. Definitely better than Nimmo. And then a guy like Albert Almora, who mm, he... Hasn't hit in a bit, so there's an argument that his bat might not be a major league bat anymore. But he can play the heck out of center field, so it's kind of, I mean, it's really not all that different from a Jake Marisnik. I think they're definitely much more well-prepared to deal with, like you said, a couple injuries. If you have a catastrophe of injuries, there's, there's no team in baseball that is prepared for that. So I think they've prepared themselves about as good good as they could reasonably have done. I think for me, when I look at this spring, because it, you kind of said it, you know, you've said it to me before in the past. It's an interesting spring that there's no like real interesting position battles. It's bizarre, right? There's no, which for the Mets is probably good. You never want to be going into it and be like, Hey, we have these three guys that could maybe play third base. Let's see which one ends up with the job. Like I, I think for the Mets, you feel pretty comfortable with who you have everywhere. And even third base, because JD is not the most natural third baseman. At least you know Guillaume can come in and give you a glove there. Or McNeil can shift over to third and VR plays second. Things along the lines of that. So when I look at this camp, and I don't know how much we'll get to see. Maybe late in games we will get to see it because it is exhibition games. But for me, Joe, one thing I'm looking at is, and it's a lot of pressure on a manager. For a sport that I don't think we describe the managers under game-to-game pressure, it's not looked at like football. It's not looked at like hockey. I think when you look at baseball, you know, the casual observer goes, what does the manager do? There's a lot more to it than that. But I think with the Mets and Rojas, who I believe is equipped for it, no matter, I don't know what people, the general consensus is on Rojas, I am excited to see him get a fair chance this year and think he's a smart guy. Joe, for me, I'm very curious to see how much, not shifting like on the field, but how much position versatility this team utilizes to capitalize on hopefully having a potent offense in the first six innings of games where they transition to put a good glove on the field to close out games. Yeah, and I I know that Rojas is obviously preaching defense and the fundamentals and kind of going back to basics, and he was very clear that we need to field better in 2021 because they weren't particularly good in the field. And, you know, they added a McCann behind the plate who's going to be an improvement over Ramos. They added arguably the best defensive shortstop in baseball. You know, Jimenez was good, but Lindor's other level good. Jeff McNeil, if he's primarily at second base, which they've kind of said, you know, he'll play a little bit of everything again. But if he were to be the primary second baseman, he's a defensive upgrade over Robinson Cano. 
And then, yeah, as far as outfield, that's really, I think, where you'll see the most. I don't think, I don't think you're going to get to the point, at least very often, where you're pulling all of your not-so-good defensive players you know, at the end of games because you don't want to completely sacrifice offense. But, you know, you can, th- in game situations, you could flip Dom Smith to first, put Pete down, throw Kevin Pillar in left, throw Almora in center, or just throw Almora in center and put Nimmo in left. And then third base, obviously, Luis Guillerme could fill in. He could play anything at a great level defensively. So having the ability to... Just having the versatility to do it, I think, is going to be really key. I'm interested to see how much they do it and to what extent. Like, is it just going to be, let's get Nemo out of center field and get Dom to first base and then everything else is what it is? Or are they really going to consider in specific games kind of like a wholesale defensive change? Like, almost like Little League in the seventh inning where everyone has to get a couple innings in or whatever and you just throw the better defensive players out there? That's going to be an interesting thing to follow. I know Rojas is definitely emphasizing on having versatility and being better defensively. So it's going to be interesting to see where, you know, to to what extent are they willing to potentially sacrifice late game offense for defense? What does someone like you get out of top getting to see, getting maybe your first glimpse well, not your first glimpse, but your first, I guess, big league glimpse of top prospects in camp. What can you take away from it, and what should you avoid taking away from it? Uh, I guess, like anything else, avoid overreacting, good or bad. Like, I mean, a Francisco Alvarez, he's a kid. Like, if he doesn't get hits in big league camp, it doesn't mean he can't hit. It's just facing big leaguers when you're a low A player. But to me, it's the excitement of, you know, seeing these guys that for the most part, like, I've never seen Francisco Alvarez play baseball in person. He's only played in the Gulf Coast League and Kingsport. So, like, I didn't get to see him play. Uh, I, you know, follow the draft, so I've seen, like, tape on, you know, the guys like Brett Beatty and, you know, Pete Crow Armstrong, but I haven't seen them play in person. So I'm excited about just seeing the top guys that, all the information that I gather from different sources, scouts, all that, and then what I do see on tape or in the case of, like, I saw Matt Allen pitch in Brooklyn, so I did see him. But, you know, it's just take that all, put them in a Mets uniform instead of, like, some junky minor league uniform playing on the junky. field. Yeah. <laughs> My minor league uniforms are just ugly little crappy things. But, uh, you know, I like seeing them in the big league uniform on the big league diamond with other big league players and just kind of just kind of see how they fare and you know I, I like to see especially with pitchers so like with Matt Allen I'm gonna be interested to see what his velocity looks like you know what does his breaking stuff look like and it's it is the eye test like you know there's analytics on everything now spin rate and you could really judge things that way but there's still the old school of like watch a guy pitch and what's it look like and you know, I like to see pitchers like, does that look like a big league breaking ball? Yes or no? And with Matt Allen, I think that answer is going to be yes. And I think fans are going to like seeing him pitch. But yeah, no, it, to me, it's just it's just fun to see the top guys. I don't take anything of their performance. It really doesn't matter. It's just get them some reps against some upper level talent. And yeah, get get excited to follow their minor league season, which thank you that there's actually going to be one this year. 
I'm not going to lie, it caught my attention when Rojas said how impressed he was the first time watching Allen throw. I don't know, Ro- Rojas, maybe it's just the way we've, you know, we've gotten to know him the last year, but he's not somebody that just says things to say them. Like, Mickey would, like, really, I don't know, he would just, like, talk people up. It almost, you know, I'd seen it so much with the Jets with Rex Ryan, where when somebody talks him up so much, it's nice to hear him say about his players, but you just take it with a grain of salt at best. I don't get that feeling with Rojas. Yeah, Rojas feels very, like, calculated, and, you know, what, what he says actually has meaning behind it, and he speaks to it. He doesn't just say, you know, if they just ask, oh, how did the prospects look? Oh, yeah, yeah, Matt Allen looked good. Like, you know, that's easy. Anyone could say that, but... You know, he has thought behind everything that he says, and he hyped up Matt Allen from the alternate site, too, from word that he got from the alternate site this past summer. So, yeah, I think, I mean, if you watch Matt Allen pitch, if you don't come away impressed, I'm I'm kind of curious what you're looking for. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. So, the last thing we had in here that we wanted to discuss is how the bullpen is going to fare without Lugo early on. Is there somebody, and I feel like I, you're probably going to say Sam McWilliams, but there's probably other guys too. Is there somebody that needs to really shine during the spring in the bullpen and say, hey, I can get get us through this month and be that extra guy? Or do you think, in more realistically, it elevates the early usage of someone like Trevor May, who they've invested some money in, or do they, you know, throw all their eggs in the basket and hope for a Batanzas or Familia bounce back? Which I don't expect that with Familia. I do wonder if we're completely overlooking the small odds that Batanzas can bounce back and be serviceable. Not great, but serviceable. How, how are you looking at this bullpen early on? So early on, my, my focus is more on the upper end guys. So Trevor May has to step up in a big way. And he needs to kind of assume that, number two reliever role and he was kind of gonna be the number three so he's got to step up uh you would like to see one of Batances or Familia show some sign of life um like Familia's stuff is still there just he has no idea where it's going so they need to corral him um Batances, I'm very worried that he's just done for you know he had the Achilles he had the shoulder and, you know, he threw today and Rojas said, you know, he's kind of where we want him to be, you know, and Batances has been open that he's going to have to learn to throw and pitch at a lower velocity. Like, you're not going to see 98 miles an hour Dylan Batances anymore. I think those days are just gone. So can he be 93, 94 and still be effective? Like, that kind of remains to be seen, but I, I honestly have little confidence in him. The guy that uh, I'm actually kind of excited about, and I will get to Sam McWilliams, don't you worry, but Miguel Castro. I think he's a wild card here where he's got a spot in the bullpen. That's He has no minor league options. He's going to be in this bullpen. If, if he's able to locate his fastball a little better, he has a chance to be seriously good. I mean, his slider is top five in MLB in whiff percentage. So he gets swings and misses on that slider and his fastball has the velocity. I mean, you watch him hit 99, but you can't put 99 down down the pipe and expect anything other than it to get slammed. 
So if they can work out some things this spring to get Castro to be more consistent in his fastball location, he has a chance to really, you know, jump ahead of the likes of Familia and Batances and those guys. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to seeing Castro this spring. And then kind of the the down roster guys, because now without Lugo, there's, you know, an extra spot or two that you might see some competition for. And I think, you know, Sam McWilliams is one I'm excited about, and I know the Mets are excited about him. Um, he's touching 98, showing a good slider. Um, he's really kind of altered everything he's done, and he learned a lot with Tampa. So, you know, that's a place to kind of learn how to pitch. And he went to driveline as well and did a bunch of analytical stuff to change it, to really just change how he pitched. Like his two-seam fastball was ineffective, so he scrapped it. So he's really kind of narrowed the amount of pitches he throws to just use the most effective ones. And then I think a, yeah. and then I think a forgotten guy is Drew Smith. I think Drew Smith has he is. a very yes. good shot of making this team. If new not, flow too, yeah. did you see? Yeah. Oh, he's got some new flow. And you know, he he didn't look so great last year, but it was first year post Tommy John. And a lot of people struggle their first season post Tommy John. He's coming in with that, you know, fastball breaking ball, that power stuff. I, w- I would handicap Drew Smith as a guy that's very likely to make the opening day roster. And I think he's being overlooked as a guy that could be a very, you know, reasonable part of the middle of this bullpen, you know, because really what they have to do is just patchwork for a few weeks. The Mets are optimistic about Seth Lugo. They don't think he'll miss as much time as maybe some of the public does, but yeah, they, they have to work it out and, you know, they didn't sign a Trevor Rosenthal because he got the chance to close in Oakland. But the reality is you have a 40-man roster for a reason. You have guys in on non-roster invites. Like a Tommy Hunter is even a guy that has been pretty successful, and he's in on a minor league deal. It wouldn't blow my mind if Tommy Hunter made the team. Uh, you could even look at a guy like a Rodis Vizcaino. I, I have some worries that his shoulder's shot, but... You don't, I mean, he was a good closer for Atlanta, so would it blow my doors in if he was good and earned a, a bullpen spot? No, it wouldn't. So that they have some guys down there with some talent. They just have to, you know, develop them and really just make it through the Seth Lugo time. All right. That's really the main stuff we wanted to go through this spring before we actually have some real games, some more things to react to. I, I like that you brought up Drew Smith. I think when you look at the bullpen, you know, obviously in 2000. 18 he was a pretty effective piece I, I mean pitched in I think almost 30 games and had a 3-5-4 ERA somebody that you know does did he strike out a lot of guys no not necessarily but he's still young and I think that at a time there were expectations for him to you know kind of be a piece and like you said I think it's encouraging that or at least he deserves a chance to get some time coming back from Tommy John. So you really just need one of these guys to break out in the spring, carry a little bit of that momentum early into the season, and keep you afloat until Lugo's back. Because the bullpen has had enough investments in it where you're supposed to survive something like this, right? You know Diaz is going to be the ninth inning guy. You know Trevor May is going to get a ton of usage early on, and that's why you went out and made him one of the first guys you paid in free agency. So... 
you really just need one kind of breakout player. Now, the next two guys we're going to talk about, <laughs> they've already had their days of being breakout players, and that's why they're talked about as one is a $300 million player, the other maybe even as a $200 million player. Uh, Francisco Lindor and Michael Conforto, they both had press conferences this week. Uh, both were actually really great to listen to, getting away from people asking them about extensions, which they said they're both open to. Those talks haven't begun yet. Uh, with Lindor, it's pretty understandable. The guy is meeting most of his teammates for the first time and is around the Mets organization for the first time. So let's let him get his feet wet here, people. I, I think, you know, before we get into the extension talk, because I do want to talk about these players in specific, Joe, something that, I, that really jumped out to me with each of them, uh, we know how much, you know, for younger players, how, how they've both taken on leadership roles, uh, the kind of people they are and how loved they are in the, the clubhouse. But I found it interesting how vocal both were about baseball having a problem in teams not looking to be competitive. And I thought it was great, honestly. Lindor, I think, directly said teams that aren't trying to win shouldn't be rewarded for that. And Conforto specifically said, and I thought Conforto would, would dodge this question when Andy Martino asked him, you know, what his thoughts were, were for the new CBA and Conforto was said top of the order is, you know, he said, is every league perfect? No. He goes, but we can be better as a league and teams trying to be competitive. And it's good to see, honestly, how aware a player. And it, of course, it's going to impact both of them because these are two guys that are potentially weighing going to the free agent market that, quite frankly, is, is not an overly competitive market. It's not like the NFL or the NHL or the NBA, especially. Nothing's like the NBA. But where you have maybe 10-plus teams bidding for your services and, and treating you as the star player you are, you know, we saw it this year with this market where you might have two teams going for a star player. So I, I just was curious how you felt about those comments, Joe, because I know you align with them. And it's a little easier for us sitting in this chair today with the Mets owned by Steve Cohen, who's worth $14 billion, that will be a team that spends money to compete every year going forward. But it's not the same. You know, Lindor coming from Cleveland. There's teams like the Pirates. It's an interesting problem in baseball, and it's one that probably will not go away for the next calendar year, at least the discussion of it. Yeah, I'm actually not that surprised that Conforto spoke up because he's the Mets player rep with the union. So Conforto is – he basically represents the Mets when – you know, they have discussions about league matters and union matters. Like, Conforo speaks on behalf of the Mets. So I'm not surprised that he spoke up. And I'm totally with them as far as competitiveness in the game. I mean, th- there is something to rebuilding. And I think we all understand that. There's a difference between rebuilding and trying to lose. And it feels like there's a lot of teams that are trying to lose. I mean, the Pirates basically have like a $20 million payroll or whatever it is. Like... You can't tell me you're trying to win or try, even trying to be decent. You're just trying to stink. And I think one thing that can bring up competitiveness is setting a salary floor. I don't know if there will ever be a salary cap at the top. I don't think the players will ever agree to that. Um, but I think a salary floor is a necessary thing for the game. Everyone has to spend $100 million. That's it. They get revenue sharing. The smaller market teams get that currently. Um, the these guys, all, everyone who owns a sports franchise is really rich. 
you know, they're really wealthy. They're able to afford this. And yeah, I think that's, that's kind of like a big driver to me on competitiveness. And to your point of the free agents, if everyone had to spend a hundred million dollars, the pirates would have spent $80 million less, which means, you know, the pirates could have been in on Trevor Bauer, in on George Springer, in on JT Rail Muto, all those guys. And you'd see, I think it would impact more the middle and upper middle of the market, to be honest, because I still think ultimately the star players wouldn't be looking to go to, you know, rebuild situations and things like that. But now you're seeing, you know, Taiwan Walker wouldn't wait until spring training to sign. Jake Odorizzi wouldn't wait until spring training to sign. You know, these guys wouldn't last. They'd be off the market because everyone needs to spend. And to me, that's kind of the, the starting point. But I agree with them as far as competitive competitiveness throughout the league. It's it's not nearly high enough. It seems like there is a small handful of teams that try, and then everyone else is kind of just below. I mean, there's teams that, are, that want to be middle of the pack. Like, they don't want to be considered rebuilding, and they're not really going for it either. So... Yeah, there, there's a lot of work to be done, and I'll be very, very interested come next offseason how they find a way to implement, you know, anti-tanking, so to speak, in the new CBA. Sure, yeah, it's it's got to be brought up, and it would change the game in a positive way. I mean, something like that probably even enhances the trade market, right? You yeah. would have teams that need to get to the salary floor and might be willing to go after a player that – you know, maybe they don't want to hand Trevor Bauer $40 million a year because sure. is he going to have the Pirates competing? No, but will they trade for a package of players that might all make 10 to $18 million a year? Sure. So, uh, yeah, something has to be done. It, it's probably going to have to be a little bit more creative. You yeah. know, we make it sound like a no-brainer. Oh, yeah. Right. You're right? Yeah. yeah. There's, so, there's way more to it than just set a salary floor yeah. and go, wow, now you're <laughs> yeah. spending more. Like, But that's yeah. kind of, I think, like a baseline thing to kind of go sure. off. It's like something like that. I know people have speculated that, which this part I don't really agree with, but have speculated about rewarding people with the draft picks on – competitiveness so it's more like you know the worst team doesn't get number one necessarily which to me i think that's the whole premise of team building is reward the worst teams with the best players and naturally they'll catch up but you know there's people that want to propose that you know you kind of block off call it the bottom 10 teams and the team that's the best gets first or something like that so i know they've talked about that i'm not so keen on that but there's got to be some creative way to figure out how this game could get more competitive, more teams could be in, more fan bases could be in. And then, just, I mean, that's how you're going to get more general interest in the sport. I mean, if you just, if you're an outsider that kind of like casually follows baseball or like you're a Pirates fan, like, all right, yeah, the Pirates aren't going to be good this year. And we know it's going to be the Dodgers versus the Yankees or whatever the case may be. It's like, all right, what fun is that? You want more teams in, different teams in, and excite other fan bases because if the Pirates do make the playoffs, I'm sure their fans will show up in droves. Yeah, it's a shame, really. And, you know, were things ever as bad as they were with the Pirates here? Not necessarily, no. I mean, but in perspective of the Mets playing in New York, things got really bad here with the Wilpons to the point where... You know, it's crazy how well the Sandy era drafted 
to, you know, put out a lineup last year that was a mostly homegrown lineup that was a, a top offense in baseball. And they couldn't go out and, and spend money to supplement that team with serviceable rotation pieces. It's just, I'm not going to go down that road, but it's just, I can, we can relate to the frustrations of having a team that you seriously sit there and question, do you want to just be a middle of the pack team or do you want to win a world series? Cause there's a big difference and it's, it's tough for the sport. It's tough for the sport and it's tough for, it's tough for the sport to be, you know, I'm not one of those people that thinks baseball is dying. I think that's ridiculous. But can it keep up with the NFL and NBA? I mean, it's just it's quite simple. It can't right now. It needs more creativity, and it needs committed ownership across the sport, not just in certain areas of the sport, to really, really, you know, enhance that growth. So getting to the topic here, because we want to talk a little bit about Lindor and Conforto before we take your questions. It's pretty clear if you listen to the Mets side of things that I think they're going to be pretty active in trying to get an extension done with at least Lindor because you don't trade for the guy if you don't have interest in extending him. Now, how Lindor's side feels, I can't sit here and answer that. I don't know if Tatis signing makes it any more difficult. I'm, I know people have alluded to that. I'm one of those people that actually thinks it's pretty unaffected. Uh, because if you're extending Lindor before he gets to the open market, it's going to be $300 million anyway. Joe, what are your thoughts on potential? Number one, do you think one of these two happens? Because I think it would be ridiculous to think to expect both to happen. And two, what kind of money and term are we looking at for each of them? So I hope one is done. I know there are people out there that are perfectly fine extending neither of them before the season and just it's stupid and just saying, you know, let's see if Lindor works out in New York and and all that. And then Conforto, I think people have kind of given up hope in a sense, which maybe rightly or wrongly that Scott Boris is going to bring Conforto to free agency. doesn't mean the Mets won't be able to keep him, but just might have to compete with other teams against them. So, and I've fallen into that a little bit, I think, too, that I think Conforto is more likely to hit the free agent market, whereas Lindor is more likely to sign an extension now. And kind of to your point, one, the Mets traded Jimenez and Rosario in the deal, so they are they don't have a shortstop. <laughs> um, so they... I don't think they traded him, those two guys and then Isaiah Green and Josh Wolf to rent Francisco Lindor. I think they did all the necessary research into his background and have decided that he is a franchise player for this team. And I expect an extension to happen this spring with Lindor. Um, I really hope it happens. And like you said, $300 million dollars. That might be where you're at. I, I know Ken Rosenthal at The Athletic yesterday or day before speculated, you know, maybe eight years, $280 million. So Done. kind of, yeah. <laughs> if, they, if that's what he wants, I'm in. You know, that puts you at like 35 a year, I think. So, you know, Lindor's going to cost a ton of money. There's no question about it. But I think the Mets are prepared to do it. Zach Scott even came out and said, you know, the sooner we get talking with Francisco, the better. And he said, you know, Lindor said it himself. He goes, there's mutual interest. I've never been afraid of an extension. It just has to make sense. AKA, give me a real lot of money and I will sign an extension. 
And frankly, from Lindor's perspective, you know, the Mets and people that cover the Mets are talking about, well, if they don't sign him and, you know, next offseason, let's just say it doesn't work out and, and Lindor does want to leave the Mets, they could sign Trevor Story. They could sign Carlos Correa, Corey Seager. Like, there's other, Javi Baez. Like, all those guys are shortstops that are potentially free agents after this year. And if you're Lindor, why do you want to go into a market with four other premium shortstops and have to compete for how much money you're going to get? Like, in my opinion, I think it's in the best interest of the Mets and the best interest of Lindor to get a deal done this spring, call Lindor a Met for life or whatever, eight eight to 10 years. That's essentially most of the you know rest of his career. And turn the page and say this is our franchise player going forward and I think that I think that is what will really make a statement and I think you'll see some Met fans kind of maybe turn their opinions like some of the ones that are a little less optimistic about how the offseason went I think you'll see some of those people turn if all of a sudden it's just like oh okay that's why they didn't go you know 160 million dollars for George Springer or, or whatever because they were planning out their 315 million dollar deal to Francisco Lindor so I think you could see a little of that. And then Confort, as far as a number for Conforto, I would guess you start at George Springer money and, and go from there. That's To me, that's the most reasonable starting point is you know $25 million a year. I think he'd get more length on a deal than Springer did. If I mean, frankly, if I was... Conf- so much younger. If I, yeah, if I was Conforto and Scott Boris, I'd be asking for a 10-year deal. That's what I would be doing. I mean, why... Why do I want a seven-year deal or, or an eight-year deal and take me to, what, 35, 36? You know, just might as well go all the way and, you know, take it to, you know, your upper 30s and, and call it a contract. So that's what I would be asking for at, you know, 25, 27 million a year. You know, I'd be looking for 10, 250 to sign an extension right now. That's what I would ask for at least. Yeah, I don't think I'd go there if I was the Mets. And yeah, I, I, no, love, I, 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 I love I, Michael Conforto. I and agree. I've, I've, you know, not to sit here and pound my chest because I've been wrong or maybe overly loyal many times as a Mets fan, but I've always loved Conforto, even after 2018 where, you know, it's like, oh, he hit 243 and, you know, all these limitations or slumps that people are worried about. I, I've This is a player that... You know, I've always just felt a certain kind of attachment to because he was drafted during some really, really awful Mets years or coming off of bad Mets years, right? That was 2014 draft he was taken in, and the years before that were, you know, they were just in the abyss, it felt like. And then he comes up in the World Series, hits, you know, as the two-home run game, and I don't know. I just He's obviously a great leader. He's a great person to speak for the team. I would really like to see them get this done with Conforto, but I do understand that, you know, and I know you agree, Joe, you don't want to get taken for a ride by Boris. And I hope that Mets fans are are a little patient with the Mets because yes, he's turning 28 in a couple of days. His birthday is March 1st. So he's, he's starting this season off as a 20, a freshly 28 year old. I think if you're the Mets for a corner outfielder, you're probably looking for a seven year deal. I would think, or you're very comfortable with a seven-year deal. Yeah, you know, take him to that 35 season. Now Lindor is pretty easy because Lindor will be 27 this entire season. So I think with Lindor, 
you look at it and go, man, we probably just give him the 10-year deal because it's like, whatever. You know, we think he'll age well. We want to be the face of the team. And maybe they don't. If you if you get Lindor until 35, 36, Conforto until 35, that's the strategy to me where you just got these guys paired and you know they're the identity of your lineup. And, of course, you have Pete. And I'm not ignoring Dom and all those guys, but they're just they're a little far away right now where it's not the conversation. So, yeah, that's kind of where I stand with those guys. I'd really like to see them get one of them done. And I think it has to be Lindor because you did trade for him. There's a little more risk there. I'm not really that – you know, Trevor Story is a, a different conversation, but the rest of those guys, they don't really fire me up. I'm not going to lie. I know yeah. everyone's calling it this legendary shortstop market, and it, it if you put Lindor into it, it absolutely is. But I'd rather just sign Francisco Lindor, and that's our guy, and, and we're moving forward with it. I know you feel the same way, Joe. You're just offering yeah. backup options. But yeah. we'll see where it goes. Yeah, no, I, I think, no question, Francisco Lindor should be a Met for the long term, and I want that done this spring. As a fan, I want, you know, they made this big trade, and they made a you know a big deal, rightfully so, of the acquisition of Francisco Lindor. So don't tell me how big of a deal this move was and then not sign him and let him at least test free agency. You know, ultimately they might, like even if they let Lindor and Conforto both go to free agency, they still can keep both of them. It's not like they they couldn't. But I think you make that statement. I think that's Steve Cohen showing his money, is saying, all right, you know, I have the money, and if I consider you someone that is worth paying for the long term, the money is not going to be a problem. So here's 300 whatever, $310 million to Lindor, and let's let's call it a day. Conforto, the Boris factor is really it. I, I do think Conforto is interested in staying with the Mets long term. I mean, he's been very open about that. And, you know, he even dispelled some of the Boris stuff saying, you know, just so everyone knows, Scott works for me. I don't work for Scott. But, you know, I, I do think Boris will you know, kind of urge him towards like, I understand you want to stay with the Mets and, you know, we can work that out. They have the money. Like, let's set a really high bar to sign in the spring. And if they don't want to take that, then let's take you to free agency. Let's see what's out there. And if the Mets do truly want you, then they'll come forward in free agency and, and give you the money that you deserve. And that's kind of why I said, like, if if I were Conforto's camp at 28 years old, at his quality, I would use the George Springer AAV of $25 million as a barometer, and I would say I want 9 or 10 years. That's what I would ask for, and like you said, the Mets probably wouldn't do it. And then, you know, you revisit in the winter, and maybe you come to terms, like you said, on a 7-year deal, or maybe even it goes to 8 at that point in the offseason. And, yeah, I, I think Lindor and Conforto are going to be Mets going forward. Uh, I, I would just very much like if they could wrap one up now. Sure. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you all the way. Let's hope for that. So with that being said, let's get to the questions. Got some great ones this week. The first one is from Teddy Ritter. Do you feel there's a prospect who could push for a spot on this team? I'm assuming Teddy obviously means out of spring training. Joe, do you think there's one? I know we've talked about how the Mets don't have a lot of guys that are, you know, A type prospects. You know, we might see a Khalil Lee this year at some point, but what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, interestingly enough, I have an article coming out tomorrow on SNY.TV about, about prospects. Not that necessarily will break camp with the team, but some names to just keep an eye on that could potentially make the roster you know, at some point this season. But as far as breaking camp with the team, which I agree, I, I think that's what Teddy's saying. The really only one that really jumps out to me, and Louis Rojas actually mentioned him in the same conversation when he was talking about Matt Allen, would be Riley Gilliam. Um, I ranked him number 20 in the Mets system in, in my updated rankings over at SNY. And, you know, he's a guy that they drafted him in the fifth round out of Clemson, and he was Clemson's closer. He was Collegiate Team USA's closer. And when the Mets drafted him, Jim Callis from MLB.com said, I think Riley Gilliam will be the first pitcher from this draft to make the major leagues. And obviously that has not happened yet. Uh, He struggled in AAA in 2018. He really struggled with the baseball from what I've heard is because AAA used the same baseball as MLB. And you you know what happened that year. Or maybe, no, 2019, not 2018, sorry. 2019. And... You know what happened with guys like Edwin Diaz. And, you know, many pitchers struggled to grip their breaking ball with that baseball. So I'm optimistic about Gilliam. I'm interested to see him in camp. He's in in camp as a non-roster invite. And if there was a prospect that you tell me, you know, barring injury, like obviously if Albert Almora or Kevin Pillar gets hurt, then maybe that opens a door for a Khalili. But barring injury... The only one I would say maybe to is Riley Gilliam. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting one because he's obviously not on the 40-man roster right, right now. Correct. So, yeah, that's a really, really interesting one. And, you know, looking at his numbers, he obviously flew through Brooklyn, flew through the lower minor league oh, yeah. system. Did it, all in one, did it all in one season. I mean, he, he, yeah. he was your prototypical, you know, college reliever draft pick who just zooms through the minors and gets to the majors in no time and he just kind of hit a speed bump in triple a uh ultimately i i probably would like to see him open in syracuse and you know see him regain that confidence there but yeah no he's he's a little guy but he'll he'll get you 96 97 on the gun and he has a really really good breaking ball so gilliam's a guy to watch this year for sure and you know i don't think any prospect will make the team out of spring but if there was one, yeah, that that's that's the most logical one to me. The next one's from Jim D. With more analytics looking to be used by the Mets this season, how big of a help will it be to Nimmo in center field? I mean, it's it, they're gonna have to position him right basically all the time because he, <laughs> he's just screaming he, at him. He he doesn't have uh, you know the necessary athleticism to play center field at an average level in the major leagues. He's a, at best a below average center fielder at worst, one of the worst center fielders in baseball. And that's not a slight to him. That's just, that's just reality. He'd be really good in a corner. He's just stuck in center because MLB and MLBPA are being little babies and can't give us a DH. Uh, but yeah, ultimately as far as analytically, like that's really going to be, you know, him having that you know, index card in his pocket and knowing where to stand and them doing the necessary research that tells him like, this is where you need to be for each batter. And you position him as best you can and, you know, kind of get what you can. It's just, it's just funny picturing that. Like 
every batter taking out the card and like and he's just constantly where the ball is being wouldn't it be awesome if it got that good where like he nimmo didn't have to worry about range factor his athleticism didn't matter because they would just hit it to him every time how awesome is that but yeah ultimately ultimately defensive positioning is a, a big part of analytics and that goes for basically everywhere on the diamond you know you pull out the index card i assume you know, once or twice a game or whatever, you know, you do your research that way, you know, going in like, all right, when Juan Soto comes up, I should be, you know, shading to left center or whatever the case may be. Um, and, that, and that's the case at all positions, you know, short stops do it and left fielders, everyone. So that's, that's a, that's really the part of the analytics that I think could help Nimmo. And, you know, they just, they just have to try to put him in the best possible position to not kill them out there. Yeah, I think him and Dom, yeah. which, you know, I, 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 Conforto went to bat for them today in, yeah. in his presser, which shouldn't surprise anyone, yeah. but we know it's, it'll it's, be tough. Yeah. It'll be tough out there. There's no doubt about that. All right. Next one is from Max Sorkin. Do you know if the new regime has invested in new technology to help with player development and training? I saw the Yankees have their new playground and was wondering if the Mets have upgraded their facilities. Have you heard anything on that, Joe? I know it's it's really yeah. early. Yeah, it, it is early, but they've done a little. Um, they've installed TrackMan, um, and you know they're going to use Rapsido data, and you know it's really going to be more designed towards the pitchers ultimately, breaking down their deliveries and their spin rates and, and things like that, so they could you know literally there's a guy standing behind a pitcher with a tablet that's connected to the system and you know Jacob deGrom who threw a 99 mile an hour who threw 99 today on February 23rd just casually throwing 99 like crazy um, but you know they throw a pitch and the little tablet there they'll have, they'll have a technology team and they'll say oh look you know this spin rate and you know this axis all, all things like that like which is still like still kind of basic you know technology stuff um, but it's better than what the Mets had so they installed some some things, but again, much like the front office, that's a work in progress. Like Steve Cohen is going to fund all these things, but it takes a little time to put it all together and what is really needed and, you know, filling out, filling out an analytics team and a front office team that knows all the technology that's needed. And yeah, so they've made, let's call it a very little stride, but I think, I think this time next year, the Mets are going to be significantly different than, you know, where they've been in the past and where they are today. Because I think you'll then be in the first calendar year of Steve Cohen's ownership, and you'll see them bring in more people, smarter people, people that know, you know, what kind of technology and things like that you need to, you know, optimize the performance of your players. And I think, you know, Cohen already being kind of active on site can even be a small difference maker you're seeing him excited to be at spring training and and tweeting about how yes he's back on twitter folks tweeting about how he's excited to go back to spring training this weekend i think he's one of those guys where he knows he he's not going to know all the baseball things and he's willing to listen to people and, and sign the checks so i think that you know it's exciting to have that where it's he would laugh if you even brought up this conversation during the wilpon era picturing jeff like bringing out this full fleshed out investment when you know he just it's just different it's good to have a guy that understands he doesn't know everything but is willing to invest in everything and and i think that 
Go ahead, Joe. What do you think? So Fred Wilpon was at camp. Did you see that? The other day, Fred Wilpon yeah, I thought was that, there. I thought that was great. I, um, I have no problem with Fred. It's Jeff that we have a problem with. Yes. But I wonder if Fred walked in and he was like, hey, what are these newfangled camera things? Like, yeah. what's going on here? <laughs> he is an, he's an old man. Yeah. Um, you know, I know there was mixed reaction because the last name brings upon a, a tough reaction. You know, Fred's 84. Um, it's well known. Fred always wanted the best for the Mets. And... You know, things went wrong financially, unfortunately, with the Mets, and the Mets should have been sold a long time ago, and a lot of bad cultural things happened with the Mets during some bad years, mostly because Jeff was in charge and making baseball-related decisions, business-related decisions. I don't have any ill will towards Fred, and, you know, it's—and I, I, I give Cohen a lot of credit with how things went, that Cohen is the bigger man in a lot of things and yeah. just goes, you know what? Let's just respect the history of this team and, and have Fred here. Yeah, no, I, I think Cohen handled it well. And, you know, Fred, at the end of the day, the Wilpons do own 5%, so they technically do have the right to be there. Um, and I just yeah. hope it's Fred and not Jeff. Like, it, it sounds as if, like, Jeff hated Steve Cohen so much that he wants nothing to do with the Mets, which is good because we want absolutely nothing to do with you. Get yeah, lost. Great. Yeah, great. Yeah, stay and, away. And I, yeah. And really random, did you see... Um, today, Austin Bossert retired, who is the catcher that the Mets got for Jason Vargas. Oh, that man. was Jeff Wilpon's son's, son's friend, friend. In, from college or something. So like, what a career! They grabbed Austin Bossert as like like Wilpon's like, yeah, I know that kid. Let's get him. And then he had a backer in the system. Once they sell, he's like, all right, I guess I'm done playing baseball because. <laughs> but pretty pretty funny one that uh that that happened, but. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to see Fred around. I I have like you said nothing against Fred. They just got into some financial issues, and you know Fred's good people. Jeff a little less so. I mean, you know, there's got to be a story when you trade for a 25 year old double A catcher <laughs> that in almost in 200 at bats was hitting 195. Yeah, double A, 25 years old. Yep. Not, I mean, not a ball player. The jokes just write themselves with, yes, you do. know, credit to the guy made it further than than I ever did in athletics. But at the same time, it's just a complete joke that the Mets would make moves like that. And thank God that's over. Last question of the show. Episode number 31. This one's from Nick. Let's say you guys have one too many and end up in a bar fight at McFadden's. Who's the one current Met each of you guys are taking to have your back? So this is a great question because obviously I think the motivation here from Nick is the uh, the fight video of the Oklahoma Sooners receiver and his buddy got tangled up with two dudes that train in MMA and it did not go well for them, understandably. Now I will say a caveat here. McFadden's is definitely not a place you want to get into a bar fight at. Because that's City Field grounds, so you'd no longer ever be able to go to Met games if you got into a fight at McFadden's. People that's forget true. that. But let's say I did have too many, and I didn't start the fight, and I do get to hit the pause button and pick a current Met to have my back. I think this is going to surprise some people, but I might take the squirrel. Really? He's insane. He is, he's, he's a little crazy. Yeah. Like Pete is huge and I'd feel safe next to Pete because I don't think anybody's going to 
be able to tackle or beat up Pete. And so Pete's obviously the very obvious running, but I think Pete would do just enough to like break it up and simmer things over. I think with the squirrel, you're going down swinging <laughs> like squ- squirrel's got fight to the death vibes. And I really, really respect that about him. And he, he's kind of slowly getting more jacked every spring yeah. training. Yeah. Like two or three years ago, McNeil was really skinny and wiry. Then last year it's like, okay, he's put on some muscle. Then this year he's like, he's, McNeil, McNeil's got some muscle to him and he's got the right mindset to fight with. That's a good one. And to me, I thought the obvious one, you didn't even mention who I think the obvious one is. If I'm getting a fight, I'm getting right behind James McCann. He's a unit. (laughs) Yeah, he is an absolute hoss. And he's like, I think like if someone tries to fight, he'll just throw them out the bar. Like he'll be like a bouncer in a sense. He will just get them on out of there. So I'm I'm getting behind James McCann uh, personally. And I think this is a funny one. Um, I don't intend to ever uh, have that many where I would end up in a bar fight but if so I'd be very very confident with uh James McCann by my side that we could at least get out of there it's something we don't talk about enough the Mets have become this like burly team that I don't think a lot of teams would want to scrap with this year I mean they are pretty for what they don't have in height everywhere now you got Jose Martinez who's a unit you got Pete you got McCann. McNeil's still 6'1", 200 pounds. Dom's slimmed down, but Dom's a pretty big guy. JD's 6'3", 220. The Mets are not really a team that... And then if you got 6'8", I know he can't move anymore, but 6'8", Patanzas, and 6'7", Miguel Castro come running out of the bullpen. Yeah. The Mets, the Mets got some... The Mets are kind of a big team. And secretly, like, I, I, he wouldn't be on my list because he's just way too happy a guy. But Francisco Lindor's, like, more jacked than I thought he was. Like, oh, when he's, when, he's when he, muscled like, up. Like, I knew he had, you know, obviously he was in shape. But, like, when he did his presser and he had, like, the Mets long sleeve thing, like, you saw, like, the definition of every muscle, like, bulging through that thing. So they got, they got some, they got some strong guys Some that I think, uh, you know, Trevor May's even a big guy, you know. There's Syndergaard when he's back. Yes, yeah, no, he he lo- he just he, loves Syndergaard to wants mix to it fight. Up. So Syndergaard yeah. loves to mix it yeah. up. Syndergaard. So, hey, how si- about we? <laughs> Sam McWilliams we is big. We we probably should close out the show with this. Yeah. How about the Mets rotation scrapping it up with uh, almost their teammate Trevor Bauer on Twitter last week? Thank God the Mets didn't sign Trevor Bauer. Can we let's clip this and put it out there? Thank God the Mets didn't sign Trevor Bauer. What a freaking disaster that guy would have been. Like, he he didn't sign here, and he's already, like, triggered by New York people and players on the team. Like, if if he signed here, it would have been such an unmitigated disaster. Like, thank you, Dodgers, for being willing to step up at the last minute and save the Mets from themselves. Like, Bauer might have been a good pitcher for us, but holy hell, like him and Noah and Stroh going at it and... You know, I'm on Team Noah and Stroh, so Bauer could kick rocks. And, uh, yeah, the Mets dodged such a bullet by... Imagine, like, blowing past the luxury tax for that guy and missing out on other pieces because of how much you went over. And, ugh, just, like, the luckiest thing in the world was Trevor Bauer turning them down. Yeah, I think so, too. I just think that it wouldn't have gone well in New York. It's pretty evident he would not have fit in 
You know, I don't want to speak for the whole clubhouse because, of course, yeah. they asked Lindor, which I want to make this clear. Lindor approving of him, I'm a big Lind- Francisco Lindor fan. I don't think Lindor was going to throw him under the bus like that, and Lindor wants to win, right? so it's a little different. Yeah. My biggest fear, and we've said this since November, was putting a powder keg in the clubhouse like him. I mean, they can't even avoid each other on the internet. Yeah. Imagine what it's like. Bauer wears people out in person. All that you can ask anywhere. He wears people out. I mean, the fact that they don't even really know each other and it's already going on on Twitter, which can not mean a lot. I just, I don't think it was a good fit. Maybe he goes and wins a World Series with yeah. a Dodgers team that is absolutely loaded and they can overcome that. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know, Joe. It just, it's, it wouldn't have gone well here. Yeah. Ba- I mean, Bauer, there's no saying he's not going to be a great pitcher and there's no saying that the Dodgers aren't going to win. I don't think he'll be great. Yeah. I mean, he may, he may not. You know, we've we went back and forth on that the whole process, right? Like, there's reason to believe he could, and there's reason to believe that he that he wouldn't. But dude, the the guy signed like what two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I don't even do time anymore, but something like that. Like he signed so recently, and he's already freaking out online. Not even just with the Mets people, with other people. Like some guy came at him calling him racist and whatever and stuff like that. And like Bowers coming back and like arguing with fans online like i can if he ended up a met there is no way that would have worked out well it just it just wouldn't so you know um it's kind of funny to watch in a sense seeing throw and you know noah you know get him triggered a little bit but uh yeah it just to me it's just a clear sign of like the mets can you know wipe their forehead wipe the sweat off they they lucked out because imagine the pin needles that we would be on covering this team with Trevor Bauer and Marcus Stroman and Noah Syndergaard in the same clubhouse. No, thank you. Yeah, (laughs) I'm good. Oh, man. All right. That's a wrap on episode 31. Joe, what are your closing thoughts? Yeah, no, excited. I mean, by when we come on the air next week, the Mets will have played a spring training game. Crazy. Like, we're here. Baseball's here. Let's get excited. And... You know, everyone keep throwing those reviews out there and, you know, five stars, share it with your friends, all that good stuff. Let's, you know, let's make 2021 really big for that. So Mets and uh, yeah, I I did a Twitter live last week and I think I might do that more often and end up and do it from that. So Mets Twitter instead of PSL to flushing that way we could kind of build that up a little bit, but yeah, I think, you know, it's going to be a big year for us, and I'm looking forward to kind of further content that you and I have discussed. Absolutely, man. I thought that was awesome. You had a million – you probably were a little overwhelmed. You had so many questions yeah. in there. It's hard to keep up with. I didn't know who I would show, you I didn't know who would show up. Yeah. yeah, you thought you'd have four people, yeah. and next thing you know, you got like 300 asking rapid-fire questions, yeah. which – you know, it, it's just a reminder, everyone. Keep sending the questions for the show because yeah. we'll get through as many as we can. You know, we're excited to see how this show grows, and I think the support's been great. We even had an iTunes review from a Yankees fan. That was a first. Yeah. That's so Mets pod. Which Crazy. Pretty awesome. So yeah. big thank you to everyone that supported the show. And fun fact, this is actually our, the longest episode we've ever done. And Joe and I didn't even come into it with like a million things. We're like, ah, Taiwan Walker, spring training, a little extension talk, and we could just go on and on about the Mets. So when we have real games, it's going to be a ton of fun. So thanks for riding with us, everyone. We'll catch you next week for episode 32.
The sun is shining, flowers are blooming, birds are singing, and everything seems fresh and new. It's the best time of the year. It's time for spring savings at your local Publix store. Pick up a spring savings coupon book from the Publix Information Center at the store's entrance or ask customer service for a copy. You can save over $90 on your favorite brands, including GSK, Energizer, Colgate-Palmolive, Kimberly-Clark, and more. But hurry, the sale only lasts through April 15th. Happy spring savings from Publix.